0: Hi everybody, hello. Hi, good evening and welcome. I'm Stephanie Smith, I'm the Chief Curator of the Art Gallery of Ontario. We are delighted that you are here with us tonight, um, especially given that it's such a beautiful evening, so thanks, uh, thanks for coming in and sitting with us in the dark um, to look at some great pictures and uh, think about big ideas. We welcome you here, acknowledging that we are gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe. Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. Um, I'd like to thank Latoya Ruby Frazier for being with us, our speaker tonight. And she's here on the occasion of the exhibition Outsiders, American Photography and Film, 1950s to 1980s, uh, a really extraordinary exhibition that's in its final uh, final days here at the AGO. And we are so grateful for the generous support of Cindy and Sean Barnett, Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin, and Ira, um, Ira Gluskin, the W. Garfield Weston Foundation, our signature partner for our photography collection program, AMIA, and um, the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of the exhibition. I'd like to specifically call out also Penny Rubinoff for her generous support of AGO Contact International Photography Talk Series. I'd also like to thank uh, Sandy Hudson and Black Lives Matter Toronto for helping us get the word out tonight about this talk. And also, Yeah, it's good. A little shout-out. And also our exhibition uh, co-presenter, The Contact Festival. Uh, They've been working with us on uh, two exhibitions, Thomas Roof, Object Relations and Outsiders, as well as a public installation of Casa Susana photographs that are presented as murals in the St. Patrick uh, subway station through the end of the month of May. Please uh, join me in welcoming Bonnie Rubenstein, the Artistic Director of the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the fourth and final talk of the series. And while we're very sad to see it go, we're very excited about tonight's presentation. Celebrating CONTACT's 20th anniversary this year, it has been a great pleasure and honour to increase the scope of our annual partnership with the Art Gallery of Ontario, which has been ongoing since the first festival in 1997. The, The exhibitions here in the gallery and in the subway are outstanding examples of the collaborative initiatives that form a very central part of the festival. On behalf of everyone at the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival, sincere thanks go to the many people here at the AGO that have worked with us and to each of our supporters, especially to Penny Rubinoff this evening. Special thanks go to the numerous individuals and organizations that support support the festival, both donors and sponsors, including our title sponsor Scotiabank, several Canadian and international funding agencies, and each of our exhibition and education partners. Contact 2016 presents an extraordinary scope of lens-based work by acclaimed and emerging artisan photographers from Canada and around the world, and we are grateful to each and every one of them for enabling us to show their work. Marking this milestone year, Our expanded core program focuses on 20 public installations and 20 primary exhibitions across the GTA. With more than 200 exhibitions and happenings in total this year, Contact's sweeping presence encourages the desire to explore the city and discover innovative photographic imagery. While a number of shows extend into June, and some even beyond that, Many will close very soon so I hope you can make it out to the galleries tomorrow, the museums on Sunday, and to the public installations in urban spaces until May 31st. You'll find complete details on our website and in our catalog which you can pick up at the front desk. One of the <clears throat> excuse me, one of the many exhibitions not to be missed is at Band Gallery until May 29th, which presents an extensive range of works by the Ghanaian photographer James Barner. For our first co-presentation with Band in 2014, a solo exhibition of works by Gordon Parks brought together portraits from three decades of his career, so it's especially meaningful for us to have his very poignant focus on one family in the Outsiders exhibition. And now I'm very pleased to introduce our speaker tonight. Born in Braddock, Pennsylvania, Latoya Ruby Frazier is a leading voice in contemporary photography. She was a 2013 nominee for the AMIA AGO Photography Prize, a 2014 Guggenheim Fellow, and a 2015 recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. Fraser uses visual autobiographies to capture social inequality and historical change in the post-industrial age. Informed by documentary practices from the turn of the last century, she explores identities of place, race, family in, in a work that is a hybrid of self-portraiture and social narrative. One of her very powerful photographs is currently on view at the University of Toronto in the remarkable group exhibition Counterpoints, co-presented by Contact and the Art Museum. Fraser received a BFA from Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania and an MFA from Syracuse University. She held artist residencies at the Lower Manhattan Culture Council and the Whitney Museum of American Art Independent Study Program. She was the Gunna S. Mundheim Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin before assuming her current position as an pro- assistant professor in the Department of Photography at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I am very pleased to announce that this week she received the Gordon Parks Foundation Award for her contribution to photography and the visual arts. Please join me in congratulating and welcoming Latoya Ruby Frazier.
2: Hello, good evening. Um, it's really nice to be back here in Toronto and um, Really, uh, thank you so much to Sophie and, and Sean and Kathleen and Annie and for the wonderful introduction. Um, thank you to Contact for showing my work. And it's nice to also rejoin people who are recently in Chicago and have that nice comfort and space come full circle. Um, this has been a really uh, intense month and a very intense journey. Uh, I believe very much in divine appointments and in lifelong mentorship. And I couldn't possibly have had all these opportunities and these uh, current fellowships and awards if it wasn't for a lot of the mentors and people that have come before me. So I'm definitely going to highlight who those mentors and teachers and artists are. I think that's. As an artist, you always have to do that because we didn't do this by ourselves. There have been predecessors and people who have laid the groundwork and foundation to make a young artist like me possible to come along and to contribute to that history, the legacy, and uh, the discourse. Uh, So what I'll do, what you'll see me do, if it's okay, is to honor my mentors and to share with you how my practice developed. Um, So, from formal things about photography to theoretical things, to social beliefs, also to how the practice engages off the page, off the museum wall, and in community. Um, And then I'll also, at the end, uh, share what I'm up to now. I notice a lot of people have been asking me that, and so you'll get a sneak peek at uh, some new work that I've been engaging in, which has made this a pretty intense um, month and journey here to Toronto. And so this image here, I think, kind of encapsulates you know, the balance and the negotiation and the tensions that happen in making photographs. This is Mommy 2008. Um, The portrait was actually shot by my niece. So my work is really a full-on collaboration with many parts and many a whole host and cast of family members making it possible, really. Um, but when I look at this image, it really makes me think about you know who's speaking and how we break uh, cycles, how we break patterns by who's speaking and who's looking, and also thinking about uh, psychological trauma and how things are inherited and passed down. I feel like um, the women of, of my generation, if you were born in the 80s, we tended to be the young ones that asked our grandmothers and our mothers questions that perhaps they didn't want to answer but mostly because maybe they were protecting us from a past that was too painful and also because a lot of us in particular the region I come from suffered from dismantled family and so this was my way of dealing with this visually so there's the visual language of the photograph then there's the language of my voice in the book the notion of family which moves between my mother and my grandmother and then um, there are the portraits and the many people that influenced it. And so of course I always have to give thanks to my my grandmother and my mother because they really are my collaborators and my work wouldn't have been possible without them. I taught them how to photograph and they in turn photographed me and they often challenged me and argued with me about the images and what they stood for or if they didn't like the way they were represented and all of these types of things helped to kind of sharpen my focus and create these complex relationships, a complex narrative and a complex uh, social contract between the photographs. My first photography mentor who really put me up to all this work was Kathy Kowalski. Um, Kathy devoted all her work and time to photographing women in prison um, photographing families living in airy Pennsylvania, living below the poverty line in rural areas. And also, she made this extensive body of work on her mother, Rose, who really, Kathy, was making a social commentary about often what happens to elderly people or to women when you're living alone, isolated. And of course, once the pharmaceutical companies get a hold of you and the medical industry, what happens? Um, So, this was very courageous, powerful work that she was making and she was also a writer and a radical feminist. And so, as you see here, this host of list of influences, this is what she was teaching me right away. And just to underscore, I started making the work with my family as a teenager. And so, you know, I'm 17, 18, starting to get a real sense of who all these contributors are ahead of me, in particular, really looking at James Adie and Walker Evans Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, really starting to think about the different issues they came up against. Now, about divine appointments and listening to your mentors, Kathy instructed me to attend a portfolio review in Pittsburgh at Pittsburgh Filmmakers. Had I not followed her instruction, I would have never met Doug Dubois who this is his work here, my mentor. Um, Doug is uh, a student of Larry Sultan, who was a master printer for Mitch Epstein. And he made these intense works about his mother and his father uh, coming from you know a middle to upper class family uh, from Pennsylvania and then um, you know he lived in Syracuse. And then going to study with him at Syracuse, led me to someone who had come up before in Kathy's classes, which was Carrie Mae Weems. And Carrie became very significant because I had spent time with Bell Hooks in Kathy Kowalski's classes, learning about their relationship and how they felt about feminist discourse. And so Doug introduces me to Carrie, and then I start to study with Carrie in her Social Studies 101 class. And it was Carrie that moved me from understanding that, yes, on the one hand I was refining my craft and making photographs and portraits, but then on the other hand, you're also responsible to the context, the narrative, the story, how it builds out. And so with Carrie, she really started introducing me to artists that this is what they do. And so people like Coco Fusco or people like Rick Lowe Um, People who really were challenging the institution, institutional critique, building the types of conversations, whether it was about global identity or politics. And then, in particular, David Harvey, who is a geographer and social theorist. And this would be the connecting point to me actually joining the Whitney Independent Study Program. I actually ended up there studying with David. And then there's Dawu Bey, someone who has always been in my corner, someone that I eat brunch with and have coffee with to this day in Chicago. Uh, He and I met at the Center for Photography in Woodstock. And we had this interesting meeting of the minds about, well, how long does it take to make a portrait of a person you don't know? I believe that you should spend time with that person and take time. we all know that Dawood Bey, he has this beautiful, elegant way. He, can, he has a gift where he sees people's humanity instantly, and maybe it only takes him 15 minutes. But this was something that he planted in me, a seed he planted, and I started to think about that uh, for a long time, because I was always unsure would I be able to move on past my own family, past my own relatives, and he was already challenging me, letting me know that, of course, that was possible. Now the work you see here are the portraits that he made um, dealing with uh, the Birmingham series. And um, you know, this really struck a chord with me because it's the question of how do you reclaim history and narrative talking about a very significant historic occurrence that the youth might not understand. So if you think about the, the four girls killed in the bombing. How did you translate that to teens today? And what he did that was so beautiful and elegant was that he photographed teens who were their age when they passed, he found them in the community, and then he found people who on the 50th anniversary they would have been that age had they not been murdered. And then he put them side by side. I mean this is a a real way of reclaiming history and then teaching people how to bring and bridge that gap and to understand these things that we really need to address in the United States, especially when it comes to dealing with racism and white supremacy and the fact that African Americans are existing in a social landscape where we still can't heal from all these centuries of trauma due to the transatlantic slave trade. So, of course, I go on to the Whitney Independent Study Program because I didn't feel that I had this theoretical discourse that I needed. And of course, it was there where I really got whipped into shape. Um, <laughs> it was probably like almost a year I couldn't pick up the camera and make the work, but I knew things were changing at home. But what was happening, even though there was a distance, see, because often the young practitioners and I always ask questions like, well, if you're not there, if you don't live there anymore, how do you relate to the community? How do you make that work? Sometimes you actually need the distance. Sometimes you need to look somewhere else and realize that it's a continuous web. And it was here that I realized that what I was missing was the paradigm, the structure, the full conceptual framework. And so being challenged by people, especially like Martha Rossler, who is known to really push Um, really raised that level of interest for me. And also um, people like Alan Sekula. These are very particular artists that came up in a time where they pushed back and believed in conceptual documentary work that didn't have to be beautiful, that shouldn't be an object, that there should be text. And what's beautiful about this exhibition, and in particular looking at Gordon Parks, is the way that he was able to use photographs and text. And so I set out to deal with a history that I realized I was denied and was not a part of, and I couldn't see myself in. And one particular thing about it, the image that was just on the screen here, this triptych, John Fraser, Andrew Carnegie, and me, 2010, is actually raster etched in aluminum plates, which are then mounted onto a wooden board. And you'll see that coming up. But Braddock, Pennsylvania has its history and is so significant in the U.S. because this is Andrew Carnegie's first steel mill, this is his first library, this is his first creation and inception, and it's still functioning. But I didn't see myself in that history and in particular when this book was published in 2008 when I realized they omitted all African-Americans It kind of was a confirmation as to why I was actually making the work innocently with my mother and grandmother documenting ourselves. I didn't realize that this was bigger and was going to be much greater than me and my relationship to them or me finding my own identity. It was more than that. And so I took this book and also um, looked at things like Out of This Furnace by Thomas Bell and started thinking about this whole history. When you're in New York City, the one cornerstone that people turn to is Harlem. And for me, coming out of Western Pennsylvania, my Harlem was Braddock, Pennsylvania. I mean, African Americans were there since the early 1900s. Thomas C. Dickerson, Thomas C. Dickerson was someone who proved that, and he was told that he couldn't prove that African Americans were there. He did all the research, and he provided us with this book, which was a cornerstone to prove that we were there. And so between looking at Thomas Bell and Dennis C. Dickerson's work, and then Tony Buba, who's the great Italian filmmaker from Braddock, there was already a rich conversation in history for me that was already laid bare. The thing is there hadn't been any women or young women or people of color that were able to contribute to it from my generation or people who were there after these factories were closed. And then the the other person that was really important for me is Stuart Hall. Now both Alan Sekula and Stuart were alive when I was at the Whitney Independent Study Program, but they passed shortly after. But something that really resonated for me and was important for the practice that I was able to develop was when he put together his BBC program in 1979 in the UK. He was the first person great cultural theorists to challenge the media representation, and he goes on to say, racism never has been put in a critical context by the media in this country. When it comes to fighting racism, the media are part of the problem. They perpetuate myths and stereotypes about black people. They lie by omission, distortion, and selection. They give racists inflated importance and respectability. Now, once I was able to bring all of these great theorists and sociologists and geographers and artists together, I understood what was laying before me. And so I took that book. And this is a view, 2013 at the Brooklyn Museum, my solo exhibition and solo debut in New York. And as I mentioned, the, the triptych that you see, you see it on the wall of me and Andrew Carnegie and John Frazier. And then that's on top of this wallpaper that I made. So when you walked into the space, it was a 60-foot long um, wall on a second second uh, floor, like with two balconies. And so these served as book marks. And I took every page, scanned it, and then I did a whole history from top to bottom that showed the viewer the whole history of Braddock, which also included the fact that it was once land that belonged to indigenous natives, run by Queen Aliquippa, which was completely negated and omitted, right? So we could fight today about black and white, but in reality, that was already sacred land. And then I also happened to find these images where I scanned the backs of them and burned them into these metal plates and also posted them, which are names of people that you know, will go unknown and unseen and unheard. But it shows you that whole history from the indigenous to the factories being built, to the hospital being demolished, to the way that it's starting to be uh, redeveloped today. And then in a larger context, tying in with this exhibition and also understanding this idea of inside and outside and who's speaking and why we author images and why there's an impetus and need to see it from another perspective. Pittsburgh was already photographed heavily by these seminal giants and contributors to photography. Uh, W. Eugene Smith um, had the Pittsburgh survey Um, and he also did the Centennial magazine on Pittsburgh that was celebrating it and saying that it had overcome all its environmental problems and all of its issues. Um, Lee Freelander happened to be one of the only photographers that made portraits of African Americans working in the still factory, which we seldom see, but they're there, people in the region. Um, Walker Evans, I mean, this is such a poetic, cryptic way of kind of foreshadowing and showing the type of environmental pollution and degradation that we would face ahead. And I believe that's Bethlehem still in the back of his image. And then Lewis Hine, when when he made the, the body of work in 1907 and 1908 documenting the conditions of the still workers and what was happening to their families, this was very key and important for me because this Pittsburgh survey showed me and let me know that it is very possible And also very necessary at this moment, that if we're gonna be raising these industrial landscapes today, redeveloping them, crushing buildings that are fully contaminated, who is actually watching this and documenting this, right? This is a very aggressive way that we're redeveloping the Rust Build in the US, and there's no accountability or responsibility for it. And when a landscape is shifting, That means a lot of people are falling in the cracks. That means a lot of voices and perspectives will be negated in order for a triumphant story to be told. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there needs to be some truth telling in this because there's clearly going to be some mistakes as they rush ahead to try to compete and to keep a beautiful image. So the paradigm finally hits me when I see Dorothea Lange's migrant mother I understand that there is definitely a hierarchy happening in all the images, even though these are very important iconic images. What I was trying to do was rotate the paradigm of the fact that in this case, it's Roy Stryker and the government controlling and proliferating this image. If I asked people, what's the name of the woman in the photograph, what would you say? What is the name of the woman in this photograph? Right, Florence Owens Thompson. And you know, in my classroom, we didn't know her name. And when that image came to me, I specifically wanted to know the woman's name. Everyone kept saying Dorothea Lange, migrant mother. And it's this type of overshadowing that made me very concerned. So I wanted to rotate this paradigm of the government the photographer and the sitter, and have it so the sitter, or the subject, would be the one who would have the full autonomy, the full voice, the real self-realization, and the way to empower themselves and impact society through their own narrative. And then, of course, there's Gordon Parks, who, when I saw this image, Ella Watson, that's when I realized what I needed to do with my family, and that was me understanding when I looked at this image, he's referencing an iconic painting, he's tying in the history of art, he's tying in woman's position in history and art, as well as politics and society. I knew at that moment that I needed to learn and develop my own voice, and I needed to to take my own ownership and responsibility over my own representation, whether it would be good or bad. I don't believe in those binaries. Life is complicated, life is messy, and we have to deal with these types of social and systemic and institutional issues. The fact that she could go on invisible and unnoticed in a government building until Parks actually went to make this portrait of her, which was a huge symbolic statement registered for me. So there we're getting an eye on foot bath cleanse um, kind of in a way forced to go to alternative medicine considering all the discrimination my mother has been facing in the medical field due to her being reduced to a second-class citizen because she has had previous substance abuse problems and has felony charges, that's something we don't talk about often. The fact that we use people's past mistakes, right? When these are mental illnesses, illnesses brought on by our environment, illnesses brought on by inequality. We criminalize people instead of actually looking to bring health care and support. And so we took this ion foot bath cleanse because we thought it was fake. And in the end, hers turned out clearer than mine. And mine in particular had those peppered metal silver flakes on it, as he described. And that is the metal from the factory coming out through the pores of my feet. And so this brings the work really full circle of what I'm talking about. A whole history in a landscape developed by industrial capitalists, and then the collapse of that industry, what it means when you're abandoned on the local, state, and federal levels by your government and your communities, and then how, by inhabiting that environmental toxic landscape, it becomes a part of you. It's in you, you've ingested it, it's a part of your flesh, it's a part of your DNA. And so I set out to tell that story of reclaiming the history and telling the story of three generations of African-American women existing in this landscape. And so what did it mean to see these 300 sprawling acres of factory being told through the bodies of my grandmother, my mother, and myself? It hasn't been permitted to be told, there's no voice, there's no account for it, there's no human document for it, but this atrocity and inequality and injustice happened. And it's actually still happening, but there's no one speaking out for or on behalf of people. And again, tying back into the theme of this exhibition, many of the artists in the shows made their own visual representation because they wanted their own authentic narrative and account for what they were experiencing in the American landscape and not what they were being told in the media. And so what did it mean to try to, try to take on global economy and healthcare and equality through images? What does that mean when your grandmother is taking care of her stepfather who was a steel worker in Andrew Carnegie's factory and you all live together in the same home? but yet we're not supposed to talk about the private and the public space or these things are viewed as separate, but in reality they're inscribed very much inside of the home. And so Life Magazine and Gordon Parks' work becomes so important because this was the platform and the level where we finally were seeing someone take it head on. And the fact that he was able to reach so many people and to shape the minds of people who were really making a lot of the decisions, because this audience that was reading it was not lower class or poor people or people of color, it was middle, upper class white Americans reading the magazine. And so this was. The story that I set out with dealing with deindustrialization, segregation, environmental racism, healthcare inequity, and corporate exploitation in particular, and then the rise of gentrification spurred by the creative class, which I see a lot of that happening here in Toronto and in Hamilton, um, which is a very significant place to that connects to my work. And so when I saw this spread and the way that this is laid out with this intimate portrait in the text, it initially made me think about what it was like when I made this decision to show this image of me as soon as you open the book to the second full spread. And it deals with the fact that I'm looking both inwardly and outwardly, trying to deal with boundaries, thinking about female characters out of a Jamaica Kincaid novel who are, who are struggling with colonialism and education and patriarchy, and then thinking about how these images play with the words and the condition of the homes that they're living in, connecting to what it was like for me when I was going back into Gramps' bedroom or into my grandmother's living room after our home was abandoned for six years and the fire department let me back in. are the fact that women are always caught in this cycle of poverty and typically attacked. I was recently with Matt Desmond, another MacArthur Fellow, and he brought a very disturbing, clear understanding to me. One of the reasons why you see women being trapped in in poverty is because they're being kicked out of their homes. And their landlords are kicking them out of their homes because of these evictions. And often these have to do with children acting out and misbehaving. But if black children aren't seen like children and treated like criminals and grown men, we have these inequalities. For example, a woman was evicted because her child threw a snowball at a car going by. Somehow the landlord decided to kick them out. So it's like looking, listening to Matt and then looking at this image of what was happening to Bessie and her children and then connecting it, of course, to my family having to live in these homes that are contaminated by the factory due to redlining, could never get a loan to leave, and then to watch them take the hospital away from the community, which was the last thing left to kind of give us a lifeline. And again, thinking about education and being invisible. There in the one particular image, it's called self-portrait lying on a pile of rubble. You don't realize that there is a body of a young kid there who is my stand-in as a youth, who's my younger cousin, JC. He's lying on that pile of rubble in front of all that waste looking up at the sky. And it harkens back to thinking about invisibility, the invisible man, Ralph Ellison's collaboration with Gordon Parks as well. Or this image that my mother made of me, Huxtable's Mom and Me, 2008. It came out of a debate and argument I had with a colleague of mine who was middle class and loved the Huxtables and what it represented. But for me, it confused me. And I would say, you know, in the book, between my background and my foreground, I'm not sure where I stand. And then my mother made this photograph of me wearing the T-shirt. You see, that's a popular idea, a popular culture, of what the middle class could be. And for me, I watched it as an escape. I wasn't mad, but it was my way to escape the reality. And just thinking about the young son who's you know, eating the lead-based paint chips from the wall because he's so hungry, or looking at the daughter's feet because the floors are so dirty, This same type of imagery coming back for me in my work when looking at Gramps' feet from working all those hours in the factory cleaning up spilt metal and slag. And he basically became like steel itself. His body was hard. He had chronic arthritis. He couldn't get up. He couldn't stand up. I had to help him go to the bathroom. Or even my mother, who we would be in the hospital every month. So we started making portraits there, really dealing with her condition because no one was helping us. Right? So, turning to it not just for art, but for survival. And the contradictions that happen about stereotypes in class. You would think that she might be a junkie or out on the street, but in reality, she has this kitsch sensibility, loves cats, collects things. And I'm thinking about how they didn't have turkey in the oven or the struggle with her son who wasn't sure if he could stop abusing drugs. And for me, drugs are something that are constructed and created by the government. Uh, We definitely saw how they got there. We certainly didn't make them ourselves or grow them ourselves. And I connect that also to the pollutants that are coming out of the factory. So in this spread here, the text kind of flows around in a lyrical way in a movement like how the particles actually fall from the factory. And it lists all the different particles that the EPA cited um, the United States Steel Corporation for uh, emitting from the plant. And then I think about how Gordon in this text, the Harlem family, the Fontanelli family, how in the end the mother attacks the father to protect herself from abuse. The same type of thing can be found in the landscape It's also a reflection in the mirror of the way that things are done structurally and systemically when you take away jobs, when you take away social services and healthcare. Here's my mother is getting an epilepsy test. And you think about the seizures and the shakes being the same as whenever a foundation in in a building is being lifted and demolished and smashed all day by cranes and different construction workers. What that must feel like, what that must look like how you internalize that to her constantly having the cancer cut out of her breast, right? We couldn't afford to get out of the situation, so I turned to the photograph. I started photographing my way out of this situation. And then to see Bessie just so exhausted and tired at the end of that essay and thinking about how exhausted my mother's boyfriend, Mr. Art, his name is Arthur, but we call him Mr. Art, He often participated in the work. But thinking about how exhausted he was, because he couldn't keep up, couldn't keep the menial wage jobs. He was always being fired. He wasn't with his sons. The frustration and the disconnect and the discord that that brings. But I believe that Bessie loved her husband, Norman, and perhaps he shouldn't have put his hands on her, but I believe that she loved him in spite of the way that the tragic incident occurred where she threw the honey and the boiling water on him. And so there's a lot of death and agony and despair that comes, but there's still a lot of hope, because that's the past, the present, and the future, always collapsing on each other in these images, always bringing a cyclical time. The sweet fly paper of life was kind of the opposite of what Ellison and Gordon Parks were going for when they were initially working on Invisible Man and Harlem is Nowhere. This tended to be a more upbeat, happier story. And what was beautiful about this story is that it was told through a grandmother's perspective, but she's a fictitious character, and it tells you about how beautiful Harlem was in the 50s in spite of how the media talked about it as this poor, impoverished, violent place, right? So what looks dangerous to you is home to someone else, and that was the same for me and Braddock. And Isabel Wil- Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns already shows us the history of, of all the displacement and violence that African Americans have faced trying to migrate from the South to work in the factories in the North. Well, today in the U.S., we're now doing the reverse migration. We're going back into the South because the North has become so unbearable and unaffordable and all the shifting that's happening with the industries there. Robert Coles, the child psychiatrist who made Ruby Bridges, who showed you the young girl who desegregated schools. And then my favorite is Studs Terkel's oral histories of thinking about working-class voices, like where are all the voices gonna go now? Right? Studs Terkel was someone who was an oral historian. Robert Coles, he had the magazine double-take, but it doesn't exist anymore. Life magazine isn't here anymore, so where are all these voices going with all these shifting and changing landscapes. We have to collect them. There has to be a responsibility on all of us as a society. We have iPhones, we have social media, but yet people create fantasies of who they are, avatars of who they are, instead of actually using it as a weapon, which is what Parks was doing. It's what Ralph Ellison believed. It's what all of these great people I'm showing you believed in what they were doing and where their values are, and it's what we see in the Outsider Exhibition. I began to take another step. It's one thing to make the photograph, but then it became very essential and important for me to engage on the ground. What does it mean to not only be an artist and an image maker, but to participate in civil disobedience? right, what does it mean to get behind the scene? Maybe I'm not in the institution. Maybe I'm on the ground. Maybe I'm in someone's home, or maybe I'm sitting in a clinic with someone. and it became very necessary when Braddock was rebranded in the media and this also is what harkens back to Sophie's essay in the book about pushing back against what they didn't believe as the dominant narrative in the outsider exhibition. In my case, I was thinking a lot about the pictures generation who would also fit into this exhibition here. They were fighting against Watergate, Vietnam, very disgruntled people, didn't believe what they were being taught about race, class, and gender and they knew it was being perpetuated. The segregation was being perpetuated through popular culture, through radio, through film, through TV. How do you go at them? You appropriate them, you usurp them, and you deconstruct them. That's what this exhibition shows, and that's what the Pictures Generation achieved. So I set out with the Save Our Community Hospital activists and began photographing with them on the street. New York City and the world got billboards saying that Braddock was the new frontier. And for hipsters and young artists like some of you in this room to come on over to this environmental degraded place and to buy up properties and lots for a dollar and not work, right? He's got his feet up on a desk sitting in front of a computer. It's a still workers' town. You know, it's still packed with heavy industrial buildings. While that was happening, we were losing our largest employer and our only healthcare provider. And so this is what I mean about appropriating and taking it back and then raising the voices of the people who are being left out. So Save Our Community Hospital activists wrote all the texts. I then took them, created what are double portraits here. These are photolithographs with silk screen text. So it's two prints in one. Some are appropriated images, others are images of the workers or of Save Our Community Hospital themselves. And then they were asking questions like this: like, how can we go forth when our boroughs, buses, and ambulances have been cut? And by the way, it's not pastoral. Right? We don't have horses in Braddock, this is an industrial landscape. So this is what the complete set looks like. This is it installed at the ICA in Boston. And then we went even further to attack UPMC on their opening day when they opened a new $250 million facility, 20 miles away from where our old hospital was, and then we protested them opening day, subverting their slogan, UPMC is life-changing medicine. And then there were losses, and I learned about single payer and why they wanted H.R. 6-7 and listened to them and understood that as someone who's going to grow old myself and have these same questions. You see, our culture doesn't care about the elderly, yet we're all going to become old, right? Where is your body going to go when you have to go into a facility? Are you really going to trust somebody to look after you? And so I have a lot of respect and admiration for the elderly. This is me educating people at the Whitney Museum during the 2012 biennial. It was one thing to make the picture, to collaborate, then I needed to educate. What does it mean to be a moving institution, a moving educator? Maybe I don't need to build a building. Maybe the building is in you. Maybe you're the institution. Reclaiming this knowledge and information. We live in a knowledge economy, but yet no one seems to have access to information. There's a lot of noise out there on social media, but not real information about policies and structural changes and the things that are affecting our lives and our children that haven't even been born yet. The debts that they're gonna have to pay because of the lack of information. And so this shows you here how I took 40's propaganda, United States Steel commercials, you see them in the center. And then on the other side, me dressed in Levi boyfriend jeans as a worker deconstructing those on a street in in New York in front of a gallery space, which was a pop-up studio that had images of Braddock that it had appropriated. And then what culminated in this performance where I was wearing real vintage workers' wear at the Whitney Museum where I brought Tony Buba to actually come and speak on behalf of Save Our Community Hospital activists. So now we've moved into the institution, taken up the space with bodies from the community talking to them right we're not listening to the historian or the curator or the docent or the collector or the board member it's the community taking over the institution and they actually allowed me to put up a real billboard from the levi campaign from the widening kennedy levi act campaign that's a real billboard i think i told them it was a painting and so they never thought about it and i repainted it and redid it from the top of the building all the way down to the untitled restaurant, which has now been taken over by the Met. And Tony continued to talk about all the videos and films that he had made, spliced with all the Levi commercials, which really upset the crowd. And then the students started to come forward with scissors. All these students that I had taught from the teacher exchange programs to teens from around New York City. And they began to quietly cut this billboard apart. And everyone just kept getting up. There was no one instructing or making anyone do anything. It was just the energy and the anger from realizing that we were duped, we were lied to by this campaign that we thought it was a good thing to do this. And they cut it until they got to the end of this quote by Martin Luther King about our susceptibility to advertisement. And that billboard stays as an artifact from that moment, from those workshops, from that exhibition. Today this is the aerial view of where where the Braddock Hospital was. It turned into mixed income housing. They have already moved people in, it's already finished. If you notice the building that has red, yellow and orange on it, it's where a lot of senior citizens are that no longer have access to health care. They built an urgent clinic, but the urgent clinic has so many hours, right, it can deal with something that's small, but it can't treat you if you have terminal illnesses, which we all have. Right? I've been battling lupus most of my life, and most of the people in, in Braddock have cancer or lupus or other autoimmune problems that they don't know how to diagnose. So the last layer to the practice that I've developed, right, moving from the portrait to the collaboration to the activism on the street to the institution, is being forced to go up in a helicopter. I saw something at 9th and Talbot that no one was addressing, no one in the community would address, and it's an, it's an unfortunate, sad thing about working class communities. We get along and we're on the same team as long as we're talking about unions and working class, but as soon as you touch the race button, and as soon as it's racial discrimination, environmental racism, and you see it happening before your eyes, people look away. It's something that I'm trying to deal with just through making the work, but I knew I wasn't going to let the Bunn family, which is the African-American family on 9th and Talbot, surrounded by all this waste that used to be homes where we all once lived. My grandmother owned a cleaners there. Gramps owned a house there. This was our rites of passage, this plot. It didn't matter if you were Italian, Croatian, German, Swedish, African, Italian. We all lived at this block. Right? Braddock is a melting pot. There's no black and white. And so what you see here are thousands of crushed rubber tires in these white bundles and these bags that they put around the Bun family because they refused to move off the property. They tried to buy them out. They said no. My father fought in the war here. Worked in the factory. Why should I leave? And the result of that was the city got together and they had a company called Liberty Tires that is known as a green friendly company put these crushed rubber tires on that lot to hold it up and then the fence, the family didn't put the fence there, the company did, right? Like they're trying to shield the tires from them. Now just so you understand, tires, if they catch on fire, you can't put them out. That would be a serious environmental ecological disaster. And the smell from all of it being there was already enough and there were children and a, and a woman living there who ended up having a stroke. I was given the Gwendolyn Knight Jacob Lawrence Prize by the Seattle Art Museum the following year, and I decided if Gwendolyn Knight and Jacob Lawrence could leave money for me as a young artist to have an opportunity to do a solo show in their space, then I should use the money as an opportunity to bring the person whose photographs, you know, whose house is in these photographs, to the exhibition to speak to the people who are there in Seattle. So there Isaac Bunn is speaking to someone that's from Seattle. And what I enjoyed about this was that a lot of activists and poets and environmentally conscious people are in Seattle. And so it was great for him to have that exposure. But also in particular, uh, we were able to help him launch a nonprofit called the Braddock Inclusion Project. And that came out of all the support that he found surrounding him at this exhibition. So I take this work and I sell this work and I funnel it, it, it into his nonprofit so he can protect his property. I want to close with connecting the past and the present. This work is still not done. It is still so vital and necessary And I wish I didn't have to say that that was true, but it is. We've pretended that things have changed, but they actually haven't. And so what you see is the cover from Gordon Parks, from Life, and then you see the story about Flint, what's currently happening in Flint. This is the cover that got everyone finally talking. And the irony is it always has to be a child that makes people move to action. Well, the children have parents, and the parents have grandparents but we don't see them. This is Shay Cobb and her daughter. I've uh, been quietly photographing this family in Flint this past month, so this is what I was referring to and talking about the intensity of dealing with a situation that strikes a deep chord and goes all the way back home. So they can't drink the water. They can't bathe in the water, she can't brush her teeth in the water, and what does that mean to really not be able to have water? I was there when Obama came to Flint. It was a very interesting juxtaposition of seeing the snipers on the school building and then seeing the people who weren't allowed into the building for the meeting but were so hopeful that Obama was really going to do something for him, for them. And then seeing that this is three generations of of women, just like my grandmother, my mother, and me. But in this case, Shay and her mother may have to split up because she needs to move to take her daughter somewhere safe so she can have clean water. This is an image of the protest outside as everyone was waiting for Obama's arrival that day. And then with this story, there is also a wedding. A wedding in Flint is happening juxtaposed next to the protests, with Obama coming to talk about the water crisis, with me spending time with this family daily. Now, this goes back to Gordon Parks and the difference of him and Roy DeCarava wanting to make uplifting, powerful images of black life versus showing images that are always downtrodden and bruised. What does that mean when they both collide? This is what I'm thinking about as I'm making this new body of work. And then two best friends, Amber Hassan and Shay Cobb, that'll now have to split and go different ways. Amber's gonna probably end up going to Puerto Rico, to San Juan, and Shay is gonna do the reverse migration and go back to Mississippi where her family is from, although they originally moved to Flint to work for GM. And so what do we all have in common with the outsiders and this exhibition and people taking responsibility and ownership of their voices and their representation? It all harkens back to Park's photograph of Ella Watson. And it's just so beautiful to see this kind of connection happen because I didn't meet Gordon, but yet his work and his beliefs have had a profound impact on me. And Shay and Amber, are actual artists themselves. One is a poet and an activist, and one is a singer and an activist. One didn't go to an elite school, right? I went and had an education, but at the end of the day, we end up being black women trying to be visible and author our own stories and have our own agency and take up space and exist in a land that wasn't meant for us. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, LaToya, thank you very much. We do have some time for questions. I've got a microphone, so if people could raise their hands, we will come around and I'll bring the mic to you so we can keep it recorded for our podcast. Um, So, does anybody have a first question for LaToya? Did I see a hand raised? Yeah.
4: Is this on? Okay. Um, I just wanted to go back to uh, your just, uh, the gloss you gave on uh, uh, W. Eugene Smith's uh, Pittsburgh project. Uh, you called it the Pittsburgh survey.
2: I meant to say that for um, the other word. Lewis Hine yes. uh,
4: was involved in the survey. Um, Hine, yes. But what you said about um, Smith participating in the uh, book that was intended to um, celebrate the re, um, rebirth yes. of Pittsburgh and the end of pollution. Uh, he really did not follow that script at all. He worked completely against it. He was hired to uh, produce a, a, um, a, a book of a hundred photos. Uh, right. um, for um, It was a contract through um, Photo agency uh, Magnum. And just a second, would you please? Uh, I can't help it if I have to explain uh, what's going on. How can you say that W. Gene Smith uh, contributed to that book? He did not.
2: Yeah, I'm not really sure what you're asking.
4: Well, you don't, uh, it, you just don't know anything about his Pittsburgh project, I'm sorry.
3: I think we're gonna move to another question. This is, but this thank is you. why I
2: make my work and why I'm speaking and why the exhibition happens. Um, yeah. thank, thank you for making it. Thank you for underscoring why it's important why I make the work that I make. Thank you. Thank you. Um,
1: thank, thank you for, thank you, Ferris, for your offering. Um, I wanted to ask uh, if you could speak about.
2: Wait, where, where are you? I'm here, sorry, I can't oh. stand. <laughs>
1: um, thank you for your, um, for your offering, and I wanted to ask if you could speak a bit about working kind of in the topics that you're working with while having chronic illness. And I know that there's um, a lot of folks, including myself, that live with um, chronic diseases and this kind of trying to speak to it, um, trying to combat it, trying to um, uh, make work about it, while also like having the actual symptoms about it. And so I think there's a lot of invisibility around folks that are invisibly ill Mm -hmm. that are working. And if you just wanted to speak about that, thank you.
2: Yeah, well, you know, this is why that the theme of the body and landscape and healthcare inequality is uh, present in the work. Um, there have been so many occasions where people thought that the portraits I was making of myself, like especially if I appear topless, they thought that I was having some retort against like Rembrandt or any of the painters painting women, and I'm like, well. That's not what I'm, what I'm doing. I understand you want to push back against the male gaze, but I'm actually talking about the fact that there is a relationship between the medical field and how we visualize medicine and how we visualize healthcare. And what better way than to use the body as a site kind of hidden and masqueraded within that larger art historic conversation. I'm just adding on to the identity um, of the body and and marking and how these landscapes have marked the body but dealing with it in a more lighter, subtle, poetic way. For example, in this image here, um, I'm wearing my grandmother's pajama pants after I buried her and uh, I'm having a lupus attack in this image. And in the topless image you saw also documenting myself during a lupus attack. Um, And I wasn't the first one, I mean, Hannah Wilkie was doing this work. There's been so many female artists that were dealing with their health and their illness and their artwork, that's just not something that people lean towards or talk about. And so I'm thinking about them as well and, um, you know, that exhibition that Hannah Wilkie made of dying from cancer and, and, and her mother was very important. So I'm just following along with the history and the lineage that's there, but now really explicitly connecting it to a real environmental crisis that's current today. And that's that's why I do it. But outside of that, I need to find a a good lupus doctor, which I think I just found.
3: The mic's going to come from the other side.
5: Um, I just want to say my mom has lupus, so I I really can see a lot of that struggle, and I appreciate you talking about it. But one thing you said that really resonated with me was it might be dangerous, but for you, it's home. And Mm -hmm. living in Toronto, there's a lot of different areas here that are less than desirable. And I had someone come up and talk to me and say, well, why don't you just move? And I found it really hard to explain, like, well, it's not that simple. Like, could you talk on maybe how would you approach someone like that?
2: How would I approach the one that makes a comment like that? Yeah. Well, there's a time to educate and a time not to, right? There's a time to spend your energy on people and a time not to. And you have to decide if that's a battleground that you want to take. Um, For me, that's been said to me before, but I put it in my work, right? I'm not going to argue with that person. I'm going to make a visual text about it. I'm not gonna internalize it and let it destroy me, I'm just gonna put it in the art. Um, but if, if it is important to really educate them, I think, you know, pointing them to artist works that really talk about that history or show that nuance, or just breaking it down for them. I mean, you, you have to really choose. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, it's a personal decision to make. But I typically, you know, look, there's no way, I've never a day in my life not woke up and thought, I better not do this because I'm black, or I better not say this because I'm a woman, or I better not go over there and not feel uncomfortable. This is a constant reminder every single day. And the only place to put that is in your work, whether that is visual, are writing, there has to be an account for these things. And I think that's what Gordon was doing. When he responded to the column section, uh, when they responded to the Fontanelli family in Life magazine, if you go and you look online, Sophie, wherever you are, I did that. And I read the response. In fact, one was from a person in Flint who felt sorry for the Fontanelli family and wished they could send money. And then at the end of that, Gordon Parks' response And he says, instead of attacking the institution and institutional racism and the government and like calling out all these things like we've seen done with Black Lives Matter here, especially when it deals with prison reform, what he did was he just gave a personal account of what someone did to dehumanize him and to degrade him. He just told a story in the response section of how he wasn't permitted to rent a room in a hotel. You know, there's like a, you got to slip it through the back door. Sometimes when you, when you take people on in heads, it doesn't work because they're not listening. White supremacy can't hear you. Right? So you have to do it in a very subtle way, a very graceful way, another way that people wouldn't expect. Don't take the front door. Maybe you come around the side door telling a story from a different angle instead of just laying it out. Maybe you tell it in another way that's more lyrical. But those are a couple of suggestions.
6: Yeah, hello. Um, My name is Kiden. Thank you for all the presentation. I think I've learned a lot today, and some of it I've lived it. Um, My question is, when uh, Andrew Lockwood died here in Toronto, there was a demonstration. So there was um, media involved. And when I was talking about how positive or the resilience that South Sudanese have, or where Andrew Locke was coming from, his personal life, they cut me off. And my question to you is, how do you give us a platform to voice our
2: concerns and also be valued? Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of um, the journey that I've been on. Like, for example, Shay and Amber, their lives have been overcast by the media as well. They're not getting to tell their story. You don't know that these are incredible mothers. These are creative people struggling to keep their children alive and to take care of their own health in the midst of this water being polluted amongst other industrial pollutants. Um, you know, when I was in Syracuse, Uh, There was a large uh, Sudanese community, and I would often spend time with some of those families. And I even went as far as to make portraits with a family once, and I never showed that work. But I remember showing it in a class one time for critique, and my peers attacked it right away. Why are you showing this ghetto work? Why are you showing these people? What does that mean? Like They are fleeing from a crisis to the US. Syracuse has a large population, and all you can talk about is the clothes that they are wearing that obviously someone gave to them that's not even the regular wardrobe. Um, But I realized it wasn't my story to tell. It wasn't my place to tell that story. In the case here with Amber and Shay, they're the one constructing the images. Um, They're gonna be responding to the photographs with their voice, their poems their anecdotes about their life, not me, right? So I was able to set up um, a platform from previously being given platforms from other people to now usher new voices into the public sphere. But it's always a precarious, tough position. This work is gonna end up in a very large distributed magazine that is the less likely place I would have ever thought it would have been. And I can't tell you what it is right now, but. (laughs) I'm struggling with it because it's like, you know, people are going to be surprised to see it there, but I think it's 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 the challenge that you have to take, but again, this is why I mentioned social media or how we're using devices we already have access to. Those platforms are out there. And you know, at the end of the day, these are small things about valuing and loving yourself regardless if people see you. Um and you, that's what, you know, you have to do. Are you also an artist? Do you have an outlet in terms of showing in magazines or museums or somewhere in the community that you live?
6: No, I don't, but I'm very vocal.
2: <laughs> so I speak a
6: lot and I speak my mind, and I have a lot of experience in my migration process. I've mm-hmm. been through refugee camps mm-hmm. and I've been through um, shelters. So through my experience, I inspire people.
2: Right. Then I think you should continue to do that. And and I'm looking forward to writing more stories. All right.
6: So that would be my personal stories.
2: Well, thank you for doing that. Okay.
6: Thank you.
1: Hi, Latoya. Thank you so much for your talk. And um, I sort of just feel like I have to apologize on behalf of Toronto for that opening I'm sorry. Anyway, I'll get to my question. Um, You talked about your process sort of moving from portrait to collaboration to to activism and the institution. I was just wondering if you could um, talk about which phase of that process feels the most risky, I guess. Where are the stakes high or higher, highest for you?
2: (laughs) You pay a price for all of them. because you can't please everybody so you know um, some days my mom likes my work and some days she doesn't and if I don't get her that car in that house she's really gonna rip my book apart this week so you know there are times where she changes her mind about it there have been conversations we've had where she felt like maybe maybe I exploited her but then there are these really profound very proud moments And there are some other personal stories about some of those portraits that we made, which some of the hardest images I made were images that she commanded me to make. And um, one of the images doesn't appear in the book at all. And uh, I decided that that was something that she and I needed to experience. And it it was out in the world a little bit, and then I had to take it back because the the conversation was going the wrong direction. So you got to know when to sacrifice certain images, right? And so uh, she told me in that lesson of making that portrait of her that she wanted me to make that portrait because that was who she was then. It isn't who she is now. And there's a power in the fact that she understands that, that type of theoretical discourse, that type of Lacanian theory, like all this higher elitist stuff that she understood just being in her own skin and making a photograph. The same issue that Larry Sultan had in his book, Pictures from Home with his father, about an image he made of his mother and when it comes to the community, this is also it's a tightrope walk because there is the work that you're responsible for making as the artist, as the author of your images. But then there's also the accountability and responsibility and camaraderie to your community. Now, save our community hospital activists. I knew that my skill and talent could help amplify their voice and their situation. And the situation at hand was here we've lost the six-story historic hospital building. And the politicians are deciding to have a free clinic in the municipal building, but because it's run by Muslim Council of America doctors, there's no publicity for it. There's no resources for it. So, of course, I thought about that and decided, well, what better way to take a platform of those lithographs in a show after educating people, have the museum acquire it and then send that money to the Muslim Council of America doctors to buy medical supplies for the free clinic. And that's what we did. But at the end of the day, I'm responsible to that work being made and then I made a decision as a citizen and as someone from my hometown to do that to help alleviate some of that racism. and the institution and in the market, I mean, if you're someone that critiques institutions and speaks truth to power around certain people, um, there will be a backlash, although it won't be noticeable, but you will realize that you won't be invited to things or included in things or you won't get a, get um, support or a grant. Um, doors will close, but that's something you have to accept, right, because the doors that close, every 10 doors that close, hundred others open somewhere else. Now I spend a lot of my time in France and in, in Europe and there's a long tradition in history of artists before they became famous, the only people who were supporting them were Europeans. And then eventually America catches up. And so I'm in that phase right now where I spend a lot of my time in Europe, but I think eventually when it comes to the market and being supported that way in New York City, I think that's soon, it it will soon come, but it's just a sacrifice and repositioning yourself along the way, but it never gets easy.
1: Hi, Um, I was kind of curious um, to know how you um, found the Flint family or how you, like, began photographing them, because before you were photographing your Really close family, and I don't know, just kind of wondering. You want me
2: to tell you what I can't tell you? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was approached by a, a major magazine that decided that it wants to do socially conscious work that deals with current events because it it doesn't exist in this magazine whatsoever, and um, they asked me if I would do that, and so. I've been brought in as an executive decision uh, to kind of see this through. Now, it's still murky and scary territory, but I know it's a necessary thing um, because the audience of this magazine won't see it coming. And I, I love to rock people when they don't see it coming with something right right in the gut. You know, you're so superficial, smack. <laughs> <laughs> so. So this moment I will enjoy if we could pull it off, but we have a long uh, road ahead of us in a very short amount of time and a lot of pressure because this will come out in September. Um, and it's a delicate situation with, with these families, And but that's how I found them was from the writer who reached out after they decided that they wanna make this section exist. And I'm already thinking and this goes back to Ralph Ellison and Gordon Parks when they made um, the essay that deals with Harlem is nowhere. They went out together. Ellison was a photographer too. Gordon and him were photographing together. I mean, this was beautiful. A writer and a photographer really working together to make the story for over a year. And then when it's time for it to be published, the magazine goes bankrupt. Gordon's images get stuck in the, in the hearings over this bankruptcy for the company. They lost the images. And so currently at the Art Institute Museum in Chicago, they were able to cobble together through looking at both their collections and piece it together. But what I'm getting at is, at the end of the day, regardless of what this magazine does or tries to usurp its power over how I want the layout to be or the voice or the story to come out, this becomes the the next step in the seed to continuing the work that I know needs to be made. And I know that I'll make the kind of decisions I'll make because of the type of spirit and value that I have, which is encapsulated by Parks and Ellison, that people of color and poor people should be telling their own stories. And if we have to co-opt a major magazine space momentarily, then do it. But you have gotta tell your own story somehow and not wait for mainstream media to come, because they're never gonna tell the story that's gonna benefit or help you. They'll only tell the story that'll make them look like they have some type of cultural cachet. So it's a double-edged sword. But I'm already gonna continue to go on in spite of whatever the outcome is.
3: So we have time for two more questions, and there's one here.
5: Hi,
2: my name is Asim. Where are you? Right here. Um,
5: Thank you, that was really illuminating. I guess um, what I'm thinking about is Your work seems to be doing a kind of pedagogical work, which is to mobilize empathy and to make some kind of change happen. And I guess what I'm thinking about now is how you feel about this concept of ethnographic refusal and if you think it's useful in any way. Because I think part of what ends up happening then is that the oppressed are always in the position of educating. And also their bodies become precarious and vulnerable where in ways that whiteness never needs to be vulnerable. Like,
2: you're, you're, you're fading
5: off. Like, for instance, I, I'm thinking about the bodies of, like, say, Mike Brown, which was pare- like telegraphed all over the world, whereas you never see a dead white body, and yet it's not like we don't have empathy for whiteness, right? Like, all we have is empathy for whiteness. So do you think ethnographic refusal is an interesting concept? And if so, do you think it's possible to repre- represent it via photography?
2: Ethnographic refusal.
5: Okay, I guess the point of that is that um, my humanity doesn't rest on me demonstrating to you that I'm human. So like it's an intentional refusal to represent one's vulnerability or precariousness or oppression.
2: But that has to do with the end game is and what the goal is. All these artists and writers were trying to change an American attitude and perception. If you're constantly being violated and attacked, whether that's systemically, economically, or physically, if you don't put the image up, if you allow it to disappear, that doesn't create a type of uh, cognitive dissonance or challenge against the suppressors that are actually committing these crimes. You, You can't be a passive person that just vanishes from a horrific situation. I mean, if you think about Emmett Till laying in that coffin, that's a prime example. They could have chose the clothes that or not have it there, but the mother said, open the coffin and let the world see what the South did. Let them see what these men did to my baby. That image spurred that civil rights movement. Like, it's unfortunate that this is still happening, but A body in pain shouldn't have to disappear for someone else's comfort. I'm in it to make someone uncomfortable. And until they eradicate racism, poverty, segregation, white supremacy, until that stops, then I'm not going to stop showing what they're responsible for and what they've done.
3: Our last question is just here at the back.
2: Um,
1: I just had a question. Um, I wanted to know what your opinion was,
0: um, if you believe that artists um, have the responsibility to reflect uh, social um, issues in their work, or um, not necessarily solely just that, but um, if you feel like they have that responsibility, whether
2: visual or vocal um, in any form. I mean, they do by existence whether it's abstract or representational, by its very nature, it's a political act. I mean, in the U.S., people don't necessarily embrace artists and value its importance. I mean, they're removing art and education from the school system. They've already corporatized freedom expression. I mean, this is already a political terrain. Now, that depends on the conversation or the context that the creator wants to bring to it, but. This is, this is the work that's been set before us to be done. You know, abstract expressionists, there's political meeting and understanding in that work versus if you're looking at these images from, you know, Gordon Parks. Um, this kind of work, it, it has to be done and it's inherent and it's always a part of it and, in fact, It makes me think of another Ellison quote, which I might not get entirely correct, but he was saying that he wasn't looking to be some type of sociologist. He was looking to send a message through a creative expression. I mean, my work is what it means to come of age in a post Reagan era. I mean, that's my visual expression. That's my creativity. And if you take away creativity, that's like taking away a part of the soul. Man's language can't possibly describe and articulate and deal with the type of barbaric acts in history and murders onslaughts that we've committed in the land. And we need visual language and art to express some of these things, as well as music, because jazz does it very well.
3: <laughs> uh, please join me in thanking the extraordinary Latoya Ruby Fraser.
0: So it was so great to have you back at the AGO and back in Toronto. That was an exceptional talk and I really want to thank you so much for um, sharing so generously about your own work and through that for helping us to see Gordon Parks' work in new ways. That cover comparison especially was so powerful in in the way that it reminds us of the urgency of this kind of continued critical vision over time. you know, you said so much about the importance of family, both core family networks, frameworks, sustenance that they provide, as well as, net, as well as um, mentors, friends. Um, you said a lot about the importance of deep connection to place and deep investigation of place, uh, with empathy and with clarity over time. And, um, and most importantly, I think you reminded us, or me, I won't speak for anybody else, but you reminded me of the importance of reframing power dynamics, and the way that you did that with such an extraordinary creative vision, uh, and did so to work against invisibility. So thank you for that, and thank you most especially for using art as a weapon. So, now uh.